So in uh, uh, 2014, I, I went to uh, the MFA. Uh, Kelsey and I went to the MFA. Uh, how many of you guys have been there before? Okay, so we went to the MFA, and there was a special exhibit uh, called uh, Quilts and Color. So any guess what they had on display? Quilts. The quilts were incredible. Um, I was so inspired by these quilts. I was taking pictures of them. Kelsey thought, and she was like, why, what are you doing? It's like, these are quilts. But I was deeply inspired by these quilts. Um, it was this collection of, of, uh, of 60 or so quilts. Um, and the Boston Globe, I'm just not crazy, Boston Globe said this, you will not see a more beautiful show anywhere in New England. What a bliss out. I don't know what that means. Um, but <laughs> apparently that means it's great. And so they had these quilts, and they, they were just, they were incredible. Um, incredible, intricate design. I didn't know a quilt could be so amazing. Uh, and so I took in these quilts and the tapestry and how they were weaved together and, and thought to myself, these are amazing. These are beautiful. These are sophisticated. These are intricate. And so I took my phone out, took pictures, and was deeply inspired by the beauty of the tapestry of these quilts. Right? And so for me in that moment, I saw those and savored them uh, and, and cherished them. Uh, and imagine, though, if somebody were to come in while I was savoring them, cherishing them, enjoying them, imagine somebody were to come in and to scale the wall, grab them, and begin to cut them up. Kelsey would have been excited. Kelsey would have said, great, that'll get us out of here. But I would have been devastated. I would have been devastated because I saw the beauty and the glory and the wonder of something as ordinary as a quilt. This passage in 1 Corinthians is, is showing us that the church of Corinth is a beautiful tapestry that has been put together by God. It is a collection of unlikely people who have encountered the saving grace of Jesus Christ and have now been brought together, weaved together, made as a tapestry known as the local church. And yet, despite the beauty of being brought together, this beautiful thing uh, that God formed through the gospel and established a local church in the city of Corinth, uh, a city that would have made Las Vegas look like a monastery, an unlikely place for the gospel to flourish, God has created this beautiful tapestry of a local church. And now the church is being ripped apart. And now this beautiful uh, uh, miracle of a tapestry is being ripped apart at the seams. And this brings us to the issue that is uh, a potential in any local church context, the issue of division. And what we're going to see when we look at this text, we're looking at this letter to the Corinthians that the Apostle Paul writes in the first century, a church flourishing in an incredibly unlikely place. And when we look at this text, we're going to see that the church is established, but division is coming in. And the big thing that we're going to see just right off the bat from the first verses of this letter is that if we are not united in Christ, we will be divided by anything. If a church or a people is not united in Christ, they will be divided by anything. That's what we see when we look at this text. So let's look at the first section. The uh, Apostle Paul, we looked at the background, Acts 18, how the church was started in a completely unlikely way. Paul comes into Corinth with fear and trembling. He is, uh, he is wondering, will the gospel go forward in this massive, complex, diverse, believes anything, anything goes city? Will the gospel flourish here? Will the gospel flourish will people, will, where people worship the God of love and temple prostitutes by the thousands flood the city every night? Will the gospel flourish in this place where the, the motive, the, the mantra of the city is anything goes? Will the gospel flourish? And the gospel does flourish and people do come to Jesus and the church is established, a beautiful tapestry, but now it's being ripped at the seams. And Paul writes this in his intro. 
First, he starts with his prayer of thanksgiving to teach us about the nature of the church. Verse 4, he says this, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him and in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. If we're not united in Christ, we'll be divided by anything. Paul, in typical fashion, is going to start his letter with a prayer and thanksgiving, and that's what he's doing here. But as we think about this reality that if we are not united in Christ, we will be divided by anything, Paul first is going to, before he gets to the issue of division, he's going to show us a little bit about the nature of the church. He's going to show us a little bit about the characteristics of the church. After this, he's going to show us the, uh, the, the cause of division, and he's going to show us the cure for division. But first, he's going to show us the nature of the church, the nature of the church. Two things I want us to see about the nature of the church that Paul's prayer of thanksgiving teaches us. That's true of every local church anywhere. First thing is that the nature of the church is this. It is established by grace. It's established by grace. Look at what he says in verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace, the grace that has been given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge. Paul doesn't thank the Corinthians for becoming believers and establishing the church. Paul thanks Jesus for doing that in the Corinthians. So the church is a body of, of, of redeemed and being transformed, broken sinners who have been found by Jesus. And Paul thanks Jesus for what he has established in Corinth, an unlikely place among an unlikely people. Paul even goes on to say, you have been enriched in Jesus, verse 5, in every way, in all speech, and all knowledge. This idea uh, for the Corinthians, they loved sophistication. They loved rhetoric. They loved clever phrases. They loved uh, and prized uh, intellectualism. And so Paul is, is telling them, he, he knows their idols. He knows the things that their hearts gravitates towards. And he's telling them, hey, all those things that you used to love, you now have in Jesus. You love uh, wisdom. You love uh, sophistication. Guess what? Jesus is the most sophisticated person around. You have all of that in Jesus. So we find that the church is established through grace, and that grace is in a person, Jesus Christ. And that naturally flows into the second uh, reality about the nature of the church that Paul wants the Corinthians to gather, to understand, and to grasp. That the church first is established by grace, which then flows downstream into point two, that the church is sustained by grace as well. Look at what Paul says in uh, verse 8. He's, uh, verse 7, he's talking about uh, Jesus being revealed, the end, uh, the end times. And then verse 8, he says, Jesus, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful, by whom you were called. So Paul is telling the Corinthians, hey, I thank Jesus for saving you and establishing you in him through grace, and I'm praying and I'm thanking Jesus that because he established you in grace, he is going to sustain you by that same grace. He's going to persevere you. He's going to keep you till the very end, local church of Corinth. Do you see that? Two realities about the nature of the church, established by grace, sustained by grace. Because we have all that we need in Christ as the church, we can be confident that we will, through all that we uh, have in Christ, be sustained to the very end. This is what Paul wants the Corinthians to understand about the nature of the church. Now, why does he want them to understand this? Because the words that he's going to say next 
are going to be a tool of rebuke, a tool of correction, meant to lead the Corinthians down the path of continuing on with Jesus to the very end. Because think of this, what could come and undermine the fact that the church is established and the church will persevere? Division. How will the church of Corinth last until the very end if they're at each other's throats fighting and bickering? And so Paul is saying, you guys got to understand, this is the nature of the church, established by grace, sustained by grace. And so let me speak this word to you that is a word of grace that is going to correct the bickering that you have so that you can continue to be sustained by the grace of Jesus. Paul writes this letter with trembling in his pen, with worry in his heart, with fear on his mind, because he does not want to see the miracle that happened in an unlikely place be undone by foolish bickering. And so Paul gives us the nature of the church. He shows us it's this beautiful tapestry, but he's going to tell the Corinthians that this beautiful tapestry established by grace, sustained by grace, is being threatened to be ripped apart by their division. Let's look at the next section, verses 10 through 16. So he gets finished with this intro, the nature of the church. Then in verse 10, he says this, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all, you, that all of you agree, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers and sisters. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. And then my favorite verse in Scripture. I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. (laughs) Life verse. See, this is a this side note. People will, uh, people will um, say, hey, this thing is in the Bible. That means God's, God endorses it, right? So, so you could get away. Bad memory. God endorses bad memory, right? Paul has bad memory. So that's what God thinks we should do, have bad memory, okay? Um, no. So this is what Paul lays out, right? Paul lays out now, he showed us the nature of the church, how beautiful this tapestry is, that this thing has been established in an unlikely place among unlikely people who are completely, just like us, absolutely undeserving of a relationship with God. Absolutely undeserving, but God creates that beautiful tapestry in Corinth, the local church. And now he's going to show us the cause of division. The tapestry is about to be ripped apart. Verse 10, I appeal to you, my brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. This really is, in a lot of ways, the whole thrust of this letter. This is everything. This is the thesis. This is everything that's driving. This is the engine that is driving this whole letter because Corinth has all sorts of issues. This is driving everything. Paul is saying, I appeal to you. This is like invoking your mother's name, right? When you're trying to get across a deep point. He says, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, for his sake, because of his name, I swear on my mama, be united. Be united. I appeal, I beg, I I ask, I'm on my knees, I'm pleading. Be united, Corinthians, for the sake of our Lord Jesus, for Jesus' sake, for Jesus' name. Be united. No more divisions. Paul 
is probably hoping, he's not been in Corinth for, for some time, he's probably hoping to get a report that things are going well with Corinth. But he finds out, the text tells us from Chloe's friends, that things are not well, that there's cliques within the church, that the beautiful tapestry of the local church in Corinth is being ripped at the seams by these cliques and these divisions and this inward bickering within the church community. And these cliques, we find out, got the I follow Paul click, the I follow Apollos click, the I follow Cephas click, and the I follow Christ click. Paul and Cephas are not there physically, but they're prominent leaders. Their teaching has been around. Paul used to be there. We don't know if, if, if Peter, uh, Cephas, Peter was there at some point, but, but there's, there's cliques. These leaders probably didn't start the cliques, but the followers have latched on. It's probably likely this. Um, we, we know about Apollos from the book of Acts 18 and 20 and onward, that Apollos was like a, a, the Egyptian Tim Keller. This was a man uh, with eloquence, with a mind that could preach with power and clarity. And the Corinthians loved sophistication. So likely this clique was saying, hey, the only preacher we really rock with is Apollos. Apollos is way better than Paul. We know from Paul's later writings that Paul would describe his preaching as being rhetorically flat, that Paul was not a clever preacher, Paul was not a sophisticated preacher, Paul just said it, got beat up, and left. That's what Paul did. But Apollos, this person could preach. And so likely this clique said, we rock with Apollos. Then you have the, I follow Paul. Maybe they loved Paul's ministry emphasis. Paul was like a father to them in the faith. He stayed with them. He planted this church along with his friends, Priscilla, Aquila, Silas, and Timothy. So so Paul, they had an emotional appeal to. Maybe they said, man, we we really just wish Paul were here. The way Paul does it is better. The way Paul preaches is better. The way Paul orders the service is better. The way Paul discipled us was better. And so they latched on to Paul. The Cephas crew, the Peter crew, maybe they loved the the Jewish flavor of of Cephas' Christian faith. Maybe the Jews in, in Corinth really latched onto him and, and, and really said, we rock with Cephas. We think the way he does things is better. We think we ought to adhere uh, to, to the things that he, that he did. The rest of you need to do that. Then you got the I follow Christ crew, the crew that says, hey, we don't do any of that idolization that you do. We follow Jesus and we're better than all of you. So you have factions, you have cliques, you have uh, infighting within the local church. Imagine this, when they gather, they argue more than they pray. They side-eye each other more than they sing together. They have more suspicion and bitterness in their hearts towards one another than Christian brother and sisterly love. The tapestry is being ripped apart at the seams. So, so how is it possible that this church gets rocked by the good news of Jesus. They receive the gospel. They believe the gospel. The church is established in an unlikely place. And some months and time later, we find out that this church is all clicked up with all sorts of infighting. How is this possible? What is the cause of this type of local church division? Well, part of the cause, I think, is this. When we decenter from Christ and recenter on our preferences, we get division. When we decenter from Christ and recenter on preferences, we get church division. Almost guaranteed formula. 
Because think about this. Is it wrong for some of the Corinthians to say, man, Apollos can preach. He is my favorite. Is that ungodly? Is that sinful? Is that wrong in and of itself? No. Is it, is it wrong to have a preference about something that is a non-essential thing according to the Word of God? No. Is it wrong to really love Paul's emphasis of mission to the Gentiles? No. Is it wrong to love really exuberant worship? No. Is it wrong to really prefer uh, uh, a contemplative, uh, melodic, um, somber worship? No. Is it wrong to love long hour and 15-minute sermons? No. You're getting one today. Just kidding. Is it, <laughs> is it wrong to love short 30-minute to-the-point sermons? No. N- none of these preferences are an issue. The preferences are, are, are fine. These are secondary things. They're provided they're not contrary to Scripture. It's fine to like a certain style or a certain ministry emphasis. But the problem was not that the Corinthians just loved Apollo's preaching or they loved Paul's emphasis or they loved Peter's flavor or that they, they loved any of those things. The problem was that they took the crown off of Jesus Christ and they put the crown on their preference. They decentered from Christ and recentered on their preferences, which, let me fill you in on this, this would be following the wisdom and the ways of Corinth or the wisdom and ways of our age. The wisdom and the ways of Corinth is the same as the wisdom and ways of, of 2017 in, the, in Western society where we live by the mantra of expressive individualism, that whatever we desire, whatever is our personal flavor as an individual is really the thing that triumphs over everything else. And so for the Corinthians, this is an opportunity for them to really latch onto, like, man, I really like Apollos more than Paul. That's great, but they want to make that God over everything. And so what do they have? Infighting. What do they have? Division. What do they have? Conflict. What do they have? Bickering within the beautiful tapestry of the local church. When you get enough people in a local church to decenter off of Christ and recenter on preference, you will have a church ripping at the seams. Right? And this is not just a Corinth problem, this is common anywhere you look at local churches. Because anywhere you look at lo- local churches, you have people who within them have deep capacity for unity within the church or division. We all carry equal capacity for both within us. I was looking this week at um at some uh, church studies about, uh, about church splits, church division within local churches, and came across some stuff from uh, a, a man named Tom Rayner who does a bunch of research on this stuff. Um, can I tell you guys a couple of, a couple of ones? Is that okay? Um, so, so one of them was this. Uh, two, uh, two different churches reported fights over the type of coffee. Okay. Uh, one church, they moved from Folgers to a stronger Starbucks brand. Uh, the other church, they simply moved to a stronger blend. Members left the latter, uh, the church in the latter example. Um, <laughs> so they, they left over the coffee. They left, they left over the coffee. Uh, there was a disagreement uh, and fight in a local church over the term potluck instead of pot blessing. Okay, to each their own. Um, some members left the church because one member hid the vacuum cleaner from them, it resulted in a major fight and split. Um, I mean, he has, a, he has just a list, and these are uh, probably a little bit more of the absurd, but when you actually look into this stuff, you, you will be surprised how common some of this is. Church splits over carpet color. Church splits over whether the worship leaders should wear shoes 
or no shoes, right? Uh, splits over uh, uh, should some of the upfront leaders have beards that are how long or how short, right? Um, all, all, all sorts of stuff that when you look at it, you just look and you just think to yourself, really? I mean, I'm sure some of you have stories of splits in churches. And you just think to yourself, really? Anytime we decenter from Christ and recenter on a preference, we, we will be walking through the doors of division. All right, think about this. Think of how the mission of Jesus has been derailed, slowed down, and set back because of division within local churches. The beautiful tapestry being ripped apart by silly, minor things. And these silly, minor things show us this enduring truth of this statement, that if we are not united in Christ, we really will be divided by anything. That's what these examples teach us, that that statement has enduring truth. These churches are, are, are not backwoods churches that go through divisions. It's not like it's just people from some place that we think are not smart or something. This happens anywhere and everywhere. So what does this look like? What does this look like for us? I don't think we're going to have the coffee problem. And the missing vacuum thing, if that was an issue for us, that would have happened a long time ago. Um, <laughs> we just found a vacuum last week, right? So we're not going to have any division over things that miss, go missing because we're, we're used to that and we're very adaptable, right? So, so, so what might this look like in, in, for our church or just in a church in, uh, in the city in 2017, just, just in general, what might this look like? Um, certainly it can happen over what we see in Corinth, over a flavor of, uh, of ministry emphasis that we latch onto. But I would tell you this, I think the biggest way that in our age, in, in, in our American society, that we see uh, division um, entering is really through this, is over change. Over change. That's really where you see division happen the most in churches, from, from what I've seen personally and from what I've read in studies, over change. And so the preference isn't a, isn't a specific thing, it's a, it's a more amorphous thing. The preference is really the status quo. And so there's a decentering from Christ and a recentering, an idolization. The crown is taken off of Jesus and his mission and his way and his truth and himself, and it's put on the status quo. And so anything is done to preserve the crown, the, the, the authority, the, the rulership, the lordship of the status quo. And if anything comes at the king of status quo or the queen of status quo, then the result is division. Happens all the time. It happens as churches change size and the dynamic of, of, of the church changes with, with the numbers. I mean, we've seen this in our church, but by the grace of God, we have not seen any of the division components, but we've seen the, the dy dynamic change of, of the difference between eight people in the living room to 12 people in the living room to 15 people in the living room to 20 people Sunday nights to 25 people Sunday nights to 30 people to Sunday and then to Sunday mornings with 40 people and to where we're here, right? Those are dynamic changes. And, and if we're not careful, we can say, I loved what it was like when there were only 20 of us and I could talk to everyone. I loved what it was like when it was 25 of us and it was Sunday night and every night, every week, we had a catered dinner and that sushi place that we would always get was so great. And Jose's Mexican from Cambridge, right? Those churros were to die for. Right? We, 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 can, we can not just say, I miss those days. If we're not careful, we can say, I miss those days, and those days are everything to me. 
And so now I idolize them. Now I want them back. Now I'm going to make some noise about it. Now I'm going to sow some, some, some seeds of, man, sh shouldn't we just get back to that? Instead of saying, well, what is the king, the ruler, the centerpiece of the local church? Is it a sage? Is it a, is it a size? Is it a, a culture dynamic? No, it's, it's Jesus and his mission. So we have to be careful when we encounter change within a local church that we don't put the crown of Christ on the status quo rather than on Christ, his way, and his mission. This doesn't mean we don't have preferences. It doesn't mean that we don't say, man, I liked it when it was like this, or I would like it if it was like this. No, that's, that's fine. Unity is not uniformity, but we must be careful that we do not dethrone Jesus Christ from his proper place within the local church at the expense of the unity of the church just because we want something to be another way. Now, here's the thing. I want you to resolve from this text that in any church that God brings you into, that you would be an agent of Christ-centered unity. I want you to resolve that. That you would be an agent of Christ-centered unity wherever God would bring you through the course of your life in the local church, the, the bride of Jesus whom he loves, that you would be an agent of Christ-centered unity. Resolve to be that. Resolve to keep the beautiful tapestry together. Now, what's tricky about this in some ways, is what we're seeing in Corinth in this text, what we're, what we're witnessing here is uh, ungodly division. But there is such a thing as godly division. There is, this, there is such a, a time and such a reason to actually divide, right? And that's the thing that can be a, a, little, a little bit tricky. Ungodly division, though, the way to, for us to parse this out is to think about it this way. Ungodly division destroys the work of Christ by idolizing preference, Ungodly division will always elevate preference and decenter and lower Christ. So ungodly division destroys the tapestry of the local church. Ungodly division destroys the work of Christ in a church by idolizing preference. Godly division does something different. Godly division seeks to preserve the work of Christ by standing for what's godly and essential according to Scripture and conviction. You see the, see the difference there? So there is a reason in a place in which it's good to say, hey, I got to bounce, or hey, we shouldn't be doing this, right? Or hey, this, this isn't what Jesus wants for us, right? But that is not based on preference. That is based, that needs to be coming from Scripture and conviction. That needs to be coming from Jesus himself through his word, right? If there is, a, if there is theological error that is tied to the essential issues of the faith, the person of Christ, salvation by grace through faith, the truthfulness of Scripture, the Trinity, the reality of sin, then there comes a place where division over such a thing is actually a Jesus-glorifying reality. If I come up here and start speaking some nonsense next week, my hope would be that all of you would, would say, hey, we need to talk. And if it persists in that, that you would say, hey, we need to bounce, right? And that you would try to help, right? But that you would not for the sake of unity, embrace something that is actually contrary to Jesus. Does that make sense? Right? And so the basis then comes not from preference, but what is Scripture saying? And this secondary thing, is it an essential reality or is it a secondary reality? 
So there is godly division and there is ungodly division. Here's a way that uh, we can be helped in this. The clearer that something is in Scripture and the closer it is to the essentials of the faith, the more it is an essential doctrine worth standing up for. The clearer it is. It's proximity to what is essential. The more important it is to hold to as a key doctrine. There's a difference between ungodly division and godly division. So, for example, next week, my friend, uh, Pastor Matt Owens from uh, CTK Somerville, is going to come and preach. Uh, We have a different view of baptism. He's wrong and I'm right. We're right, he's, they're wrong. I kid, but that's what I think. And that's what he thinks. But that issue, I think, is clear from Scripture, but it's not so clear and it's not so essential that our churches don't work together all the time. We're still centered in agreement on all the essentials of Christ. Baptism is important, but baptism isn't an issue of life or death, salvation or not. Baptism is baptism. Right? And so that's a place where it's not everything. There's a lot of places that are not everything, and there are a few places that are absolutely everything. And we need to know them, and we need to care. And so I want to just mention that, though that's not tied to this text, I want to mention that to equip you, wherever God would have you uh, in, in, in through your life of following Jesus, that you would be able to know and parse out the difference. And so when we decenter from Christ and recenter on preference, we walk into division. So what's the cure for division? Let me say this real quick. Can I, say, can I add something real quick? You guys okay with that? Yes? Okay. Uh, this, this bothers me. People think, oh, there's so many denominations. Why can't the church be unified? Denominations most of the time are actually a sign of unity. You know why? Because they disagree on secondary things, but they agree on all the, all the major things. So next time someone, you, someone says to you, hey, denominations, the church is so divided, maybe a friend that, that is not familiar, the church is so divided, all these denominations, you got to say, hey, denominations are actually a sign of unity, because guess what? They agree on all of these major things, and it's just some of these secondary things that they say, hey, we're going to do it different. Some of us say, we're going to pour water on our babies. Others say, we're going to wait till they get a little bit older so they know what the water is for, right? So there's these secondary things that we disagree on, but almost down the line, in the middle, for the most part, we're almost all unified, okay? You guys okay with that? That side reality, Right? That's something that bothers me deeply. It's like, <laughs> denominations, we're divided. No, we're not. It's unity and diversity. And that's part of what Paul actually wants here. He's not having a problem with people saying, hey, I love Apollos. He's not having a problem with any of those things. He's just saying, you can't say you love Apollos more than you love Jesus and fight with all the other people who love Paul's preaching. You can't do that. You love Jesus more. That's what he's getting at here. So what is the cure for division? Thank you for indulging me. Look at verse 13. What is the cure for division? Paul brings these questions out to bring the cure. The cause of division is decentering from Christ, recentering on our preferences. What is the cure for division? Look at what Paul says. He says this, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Three questions. Three questions. What is the cure for division? The cure for division comes in a couple of different ways. In verse 10, Paul encourages the church not to be divided, but to have the same mind and the same judgment. This is sort of a callback to Philippians 2, uh, chapter, uh, uh, chapter 2, around verse 4, uh, 4 through 6, where Paul is actually going to urge the, the church of Philippi to have the mind of Christ, to, to, to embrace the thinking that is Jesus. And that's really sort of what Paul is saying here. He's saying, hey, think about the church the way that Jesus does. 
and you will be unified. That will help you. But then he pulls out the big guns in verse 13. He pulls out the big punches to help bring the cure for division within a local church that is full of cliques and fractures. And this is what he does. He asks this question, is Christ divided? Is the body of Jesus chopped up, dismembered, and parceled out a few things to these people, a few things to that people, a few things to this people, a few things to this people, same local church, is the body of Jesus chopped up, dismembered, and divided among the room? No, it is not. So why are you divided? Then he pulls out the, the big dose of, of medicine, right? You, you know this when you were sick and maybe your, your mother, or your father, or your caretaker, right? When you were really sick, there was a special medicine that they had to pull out to really help you. How many of you have ever had castor oil before? Yeah, that's how you knew it was bad, right? You get the castor oil. You're like, no, and the giant spoon, right? Like the ladle with the castor oil. That's what Paul is doing here. He is bringing out the big remedy, and he asks this question. He says, was Christ crucified for you? He's bringing them back to the very center of why there is a church in Corinth, why they have a relationship with God, why they have forgiveness of their sins, why they're a part of the kingdom, why they have the Holy Spirit, why they have joy, peace, and confidence in their future with God, why they have all of those things. He brings it back to the very center, the cross of Jesus Christ. He said, did Paul, did Paul die for you? Did, did Apollos climb the cross and crucified? Did, did, did Cephas... Was Cephas nailed to a tree for you? Was your, was your favorite preacher crucified for you? Is your secondary issue of theology, did, did, that, did that thing uh, become human and, and, and die for you? Did your style of worship die for you? Did your preference of church size die for you? Did any of these things die for you? No, Jesus did. So don't idolize these things. Don't make these things everything and destroy the body of Jesus. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Paul's every single question in this verse is meant to bring them back to one name, Jesus Christ. He's showing us three things, that Jesus, was Paul crucified for you? That question is showing us that Jesus is the Savior and source of the church. Not Paul, not Apollos, not Cephas. Jesus is the source and Savior of the local church, every local church, Beijing, Nigeria, Somerville, Seattle, Sioux Falls, everywhere. Jesus is the center and source of the local church, so who are we to divide the local church over secondary things? Who are we to bring bickering and destroy this beautiful tapestry when Jesus himself is the source and center? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? This is, this is begging the question of this, or showing us this reality, rather, that Jesus is the Lord of the church. He's the one who rules over the church. So who are we in the place where he rules to come and to say, hey, actually, I rule. Let me make my power play over the issue of coffee. Do you ever think any of those divisions that we just talked about are really about coffee? You think it's really about coffee? You think it's really about carpet color? You think it's really about whether, uh, whether my feet should be airing out while I'm up here or covered in fresh sneakers? Is it really about that? You know what it's about? It's about power. Is it not? It's about power. It's about being able to say, my way be done in the church. Well, what about this? Christ's way be done in the church. And think about this. When Paul asked the question, was Paul crucified for you? What is the crucifixion? What did that require of Jesus Christ? What did he have to lay down? His power, his privilege, his status. He remained fully God and fully man, but he laid down the, the enacting, the seizing, the grasping, the embodying of those realities. He laid them down to be crucified 
as a sinner for you and I. And so the way of the cross shows us that power is not to be fought over in the church, but we follow the way of our Lord and we lay down our power, we lay down our preferences, we lay down our rights for the sake of the other, for the sake of the body of Jesus to be strengthened and to be unified and to make progress in the good news of Jesus going forward in our lives and in the lives of others. So the way of the cross shows us a different way. Now think about this also. How impressive is Apollos when you begin to remember that Jesus died for you? Not that impressive. How impressive is your favorite style of worship when you remember that the Son of God hung bleeding and naked on a tree for your sins? Not that impressive. Paul is showing us if we keep our eyes close on Jesus Christ and the cross of Jesus, we will be led to worship. And guess what? It is hard to fight and bicker with one another when we are worshiping Jesus together. Some of you in this room maybe are bickering with one another. Maybe there's somebody in this room that has bothered you or you just think is annoying and has upset you or hurt you in some way. But you don't want to extend forgiveness, you don't want to talk about it, you don't want to work through it because you have not lifted your eyes to see Jesus and his bigness for that situation. That maybe where there's division and discord, maybe Jesus is big enough to bring unity. None of this can happen. Churches cannot stand united for long. We cannot see the progress of the gospel in the local church for our spiritual growth and flowing out to our cities unless we are united in Christ. And the only way we become united in Christ is if we keep our eyes centered on him. By seeing what he accomplished through the cross and seeing that he is the Lord, source, and savior of the church. So the question for us becomes this. Will we believe what Jesus has done for us through the cross? And then will we apply our energies, our prayers, our efforts, our talents, our everything towards the unity of the church going forward for the sake of Jesus? If we are not united in Christ, we will be divided by anything. Let's take a moment to pray and reflect silently on this text. I want to encourage you as you do that to ask God this question, God, what are you teaching me? What do you have for me from this word? If you're here and you're not a Christian and you're thinking through these things, maybe for the first time, maybe for the hundredth time, I would encourage you if you feel comfortable doing this uh, silently to just ask and say, God, if Jesus is real, would you you show that to me? Would you you make that uh, clear to me in my life?